Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about a dozen years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild, um, Jace Lift for Hope, USSF, and I guess uh, I'm, I'm the coach of three junior Olympic gold medalist, and we got 11 world and American records yesterday. So, That's fantastic. Yeah, we, we dominated the field for sure. So Very nice. And we also have with us today Chris Peters from Sense About Science. Uh, listeners, you probably realize, that if you're coming back to us, that um, we've been discussing quite a bit lately, about, uh, like the episode called Changing Your Game, uh, where we're talking about what level, you know, uh, what requisite uh, do you insist on before you change the way you lift or the way you eat. And so uh, I, a couple of weeks ago, I just sort of reached out to Chris and his colleagues at Sense About Science to help us talk about evidence, you know, bring in the expert, so to speak. Um, so let's just start with that, Chris. Uh, if you could just share with everybody your background in this. I mean, how did you get started in general, uh, and how did Sense About Science get started? So I've been in Sense About Science for about two years now. Um, sense About Science is a, is a charity, and we aim to uh, equip people to make sense of science and evidence, and also to promote the use of evidence in, in public life. And this takes us from responding to outlandish diet claims, uh, helping parents understand uh, about vaccines, uh, helping people with chronic illnesses to uh, beat you know, misleading claims uh, for so-called miracle cures that they come across on the internet, and also you know, pressing for the, the sound use of statistics in, in, in media reporting. Oh, well, wow, good luck with that one. I've, I've <laughs> railed against the idea for years that oftentimes journalists will you know, they'll take correlational evidence and they'll make it cause and effect or they'll they'll make the conclusion for us, you know, and it's always been one of the things that I have been disappointed with. I mean, they leave the cool stuff out of a lot of the news. You know, they don't talk about the methods, including like the population that they're studying and that sort of thing or how long it took. They just jump to some very um, dumbed down conclusion. You know, I think about Einstein talking about simplify as far as you can, but not further and I think they a lot of times journalists will simplify things to the point that it's just wrong. You know, they're making conclusions maybe they shouldn't. So we 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 see it a lot. We see um, what we call link stories, where like you say, correlation is is seen, whether it's in a in a science journal, a study that's been produced, and a journalist picks up on this this correlation, and like you say, the headline or maybe even the article itself suggests that it actually means causation, and um, yeah, that can that can confuse a lot of people, and it can and it can cause problems. I love it. Link. I, I've, that's great. That's exactly what I, that's such an irksome word for me, you know, linked to, well, wait, what do you mean? You know, so I mean, you, you can link a lot of things. Anyway. Exactly. So why, uh, you said there's vaccinations, there's lots of other things going on here, but uh, 
why diet specifically? I mean, I think our readership or listenership is going to be most interested in the dietary side of things. Um, why the focus on that? So, um, Sense About Science, we, um, we support uh, early career researchers um, to help them get involved in the, in, the, in the public discussion of science and evidence. And we have something called our Voice of Young Science Network, our Voice Network. Um, there's about 2,000 members from all around the world. And um, they basically came to us. They said they were really frustrated by just the sheer amount of contradictory dietary information that is around in the, in the newspapers, on the news, you know, especially on your Facebook wall and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted to draw attention to this. You know, they wanted to make, kick up a fuss about it, basically, because the problem is that it's not without consequence, these, these bad diets. People can actually introduce malnutrition through overly restrictive diets. People can really lose heart when they're trying to follow these darts which are you know just not sustainable obviously people are spending uh, potentially a lot of money on on products and exotic foods because you know things are being claimed of uh, superfoods that kind of thing and so what what they've done is they've 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 taken five diets which they've seen in in the news a lot that have been doing the rounds as they say and they've taken five more diets which they've just completely made up themselves and they've jumbled them all together um, and the idea is, is to see if people can spot the difference between, you know, these so-called real diets and, and the spoof diets. And actually, it turns out it's really quite difficult to tell the difference, which just highlights how much bad dietary advice there is out there. Right. You know, I was just watching uh, – Phil, have you ever seen Lewis Black, the stand-up mm-hmm. comedian? Yeah. yeah. You know, he's sort of that nervous, you know, but mm. bright guy, and he's hilarious. And uh, he was talking about – how little we know about nutrition. Now, of course, we know a lot. There's decades of literature, you know, but he was going on about milk, good or bad. I rest my case, you know, and <laughs> because, you know, there's two sides to a lot of this stuff. And, you know, and I think that's the whole idea of trying to build some form of consensus, you know, in the literature about it good or bad, but for who, you know, and those are value judgments, you know, and it's hard to teach people that, you know, the science is just going to support or refute a hypothesis, you know, how science is reductionist by nature and you're answering little questions before you move on. So I, he was making a point of that, you know, and I think it was, he was, I think he's hilarious, but, and he's saying, you know, milk, you know, that just really illustrates the, how little we know. But, um, so before we, uh, get into a specific topic, uh, for today, um, are, are you comfortable talking about your background a little bit yourself? I mean, you said people came to you, these young scientists, and were frustrated. I mean, you must have a passion about this. Um, me per- personally, it's, it's, it's always frustrating to see this huge amount of contradictory advice. I mean, our sense about science, we monitor the kind of uh, daily newspapers. Um, and you can just see every day we have our meeting, we kind of shout out stories that we think we might need to respond to because there's misrepresentations or you know inaccuracies about the science and how it's been reported. And pretty much every day um, we'll have a diet, whether it's you know dairy's good for you, dairy's bad for you, sugar, salt, you know carbohydrates, proteins. It always seems to be focusing on one aspect of diet. Um, and claiming that we should all be eating juju berries or whatever it is, right. whatever fad diet it is that week, and it's just something that's really frustrated me, you know, for years really, because you know, if if you were approaching this and you you didn't really have a background in it, like I don't, then you know, how would you make sense of all of this advice? Where do you go to get 
you know, a trusted source of information. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I found Sense About Science, because they are that, that trusted source of information. Right. So your personal background, is it uh, like when you went to university, was it journalism? Was it science-based? Um, what's your background there? So so I did an undergrad degree in, in, in biological sciences and found myself specializing in plant sciences. Um, personally really interested in climate change, how you know climate change is going to change, uh, how plants grow, how they respond to you know future environments. And I went on to do a PhD uh, in, in plant science. Um, and then whilst doing that PhD, I spent three months on secondment at the, um, the Welsh uh, kind of National Assembly for Wales, the Welsh government, and got really interested in how science translates into policy and how that can often be quite a difficult journey where you're having scientists talking to policymakers and one of them doesn't understand how policy works, the other one doesn't understand how science works and what you get is you know, an, a, a conclusion that isn't helpful for anyone. Um, and that's really how I got into in, into sense about science is because they do a lot of policy work and helping that that science to policy gap. Oh, I see. Yeah, I often see. In fact, um, to my students, sometimes I'll share information about how even the humanities and the sciences. You know, we speak somewhat different languages, but we have to come together for the best possible outcomes. You know, it sounds similar, actually. Um, uh-huh. Now. This is a tangent, and I didn't plan on asking you this, but given your specific background in plant biology, uh, what do you think about all the genetically modified organism stuff and the Monsanto, you know, thing that's happening? Uh, I, you know, I obviously that it's, I'm guessing it's not just here in the states, um, but what's your take on genetically modified organisms and what the evidence says? And you know, because I think people are very confused about our GMO. Um, products, are they bad? Should they be labeled? Uh, you know, and like, for example, I've actually heard that some some of the, um, you know, big corporations are suing, I think it's the government of the state of Vermont, uh, not to have any labels on the food that it's been genetically modified in some way. And because, you know, the, the state government didn't like it, uh, the, the, you know, big corporation does want this to go through without labeling, uh, and apparently the state doesn't have enough money to combat the mega corporation, if that makes any sense. So, what's your take on GMO foods and what's going on between policy and science there? Um, interesting topic. Lots of questions. Um, uh, I'm not familiar with the kind of U.S. situation, but you know, it, it is obviously in the newspapers a lot in Europe. Um, and there are a lot of scare stories about it, which can be very frustrating. I think the evidence is that there is you know, no evidence of harm as a result of, of GM crops. But I think people you know, jump on bandwagons when they start talking about frankenfoods and things like that and super weeds. Um, and it was this kind of non-scientific debate which actually started Sense About Science um, 11 years ago. Not just GM, but other things like the MMR, uh, autism, scare... Um, these kind of debates that were going on in the public 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 discussion, and there, the scientists weren't actually getting involved in that in that debate. And so, sense about science was was started to try and get the scientists talking, you know, not just to the public but to journalists, to politicians, to try and make sure the debate, the discussion was you know rooted in science, where often it is not. Um, on GM, I mean, only um, earlier this week, a group of NGOs wrote to um, the incoming, the president-elect for the European Commission, uh, 
and basically suggested that the chief scientific advisor um, should be abolished, the, the post should be abolished. And one of the reasons they stated for this is that her kind of opinions or her, what she's been saying about GM um, hasn't been uh, in agreement with them. So she's been saying that the evidence is that it's, it's safe and there's no evidence of harm while they're claiming the opposite and that they, you know, there is no scientific consensus on it. And as a result, they think there shouldn't be this chief scientific advisor post. Um, so as a result of that, we've actually written to uh, the president-elect um, to say you know, we, we really think that there needs to be this chief scientific advisor because if you don't have this um, voice for science, especially in Europe, then you, know, you, can, you, can, you can lose that perspective completely. Right. That actually reminds me a bit of um, – I remember listening to uh, some Sagan audiobooks. It's been a while now. Uh, and he was, he was sort of bemoaning the removal – of scientific advisory boards from, you know, the advisory groups for Congress over here, you know, and it, again, you know, you got a society that's built on science and technology and then, you know, the kinds of our politicians, I mean, I don't know how much you guys laugh at them or how, if you're, if yours are any better, but we've got some very funny ideas over here coming out of these, these politicians. And in fact, there's a, there's an interesting Ted talk about, it's called the God complex. And the guy is actually, explaining about how absurd this is for politicians they're not making decisions based on any kind of evidence you know they're making they're making policy based on personal belief systems you know and hence why he called it the god complex but the point being is they're woefully uneducated about actual evidence and they think they can do something i mean how complicated is economics for example none of us have degrees mm -hmm. or background in that but people get doctorates in this post doctorates in this so you know to think that this guy with no science training could come along or no economics training and make decisions on these complex systems it's absurd and yet as a public we don't question that you know so. I mean, evidence-based policy is something that politicians like to, to shout about, and it's you know, kind of you know in vogue, as it were. But you know, we've had problems in the UK in the past. There's been um, uh, advisory panels on 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 drugs and drug policy, and you know, when that advisory panel came up with a conclusion, um, the, the the chair was actually sacked because they didn't agree with the conclusion that 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 came up with. Um, so it's not you know just in the U.S. where there is this disconnect between, you know, science and policy in a lot of cases. Right. Okay, well, it's a little early, but I'll tell you what. Let's go to break, uh, and when we come back, we're going to just continue this topic, I think, about, you know, what is, um, what's a good diet? What constitutes evidence when it comes to nutrition and that sort of thing? And are lifters particularly vulnerable uh, to some of these bogus diets? So we'll be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69. US So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to 
drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people, and you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals, so you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So, thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. <laughs> Weekly Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. <laughs> All right. Welcome back, everybody. It's Phil and Lonnie, and we're with Chris Peters from Sense About Science. Uh, and we're uh, talking about evidence, what constitutes evidence, and we're focusing a lot on nutrition, but we'll pull this to the training side a little bit here and there as well. Um, my first question for you, Chris, then, is um, we, we, you know, we talk about the disconnect between policymakers and scientists and, and this and that. So what constitutes evidence when our listeners seek evidence maybe they're not trained maybe they haven't gone to university for it you know whatever what should they consider as evidence when they make training or eating decisions i think you're right you don't you don't have to be an expert to kind of understand and ask questions of claims that people are making what products claims are being made um and we do have kind of a guide called I Don't Know What to Believe, which explains kind of some of the questions that you can ask to help make sense and decide whether, you know, what you've been given constitutes good evidence or not. And and one of the first questions to ask is, um, you know, has that been peer-reviewed? Um, and, and peer review is, you know, for those who don't know, it's, it's, it's a way in which... Um, in the in the research science community, it means that um, you know your peers have given uh, the paper that you've written you know a level of um, a check basically a field check for kind of uh, significance and originality, um, and it has to go through this peer review process before it can can be published. Um, so it's it's a really good simple question to ask. You know, has that been peer reviewed to give you an idea of uh, you know a simple benchmark as to as to how good that evidence is. Um, you know, if you if you read an article in the newspaper talking about a new claim for a, I don't know a new diet, say for example, or a new a new drug, um, it could be that it was reported 
uh, at a science conference where someone's just presenting their preliminary research. And, and it could be that that goes on to become, you know, published in a journal. But at that point, it hasn't had that peer review, peer review kind of process. And so, you know, maybe you shouldn't give it as much as much weight as something which has been, you know, peer reviewed and compared compared uh, against the kind of uh, outstanding evidence by, you know, others in that field. Okay. And back to just hearkening back to before we hit record, Chris, um, do you trust journalists in their delivery of what, you know, they get a hold of some of these findings and then uh, they then go tell people what happened or what they should do with that information uh, what's your thought on the link between scientists and the journalists? Um, I think there are there are good journalists. There are there are there are not so good journalists. Um, often, you know, you have to realize that journalists have got an agenda. That you know, their agenda is to sell newspapers, get clicks on a web page, um, and some of them do that um, very well in terms of reporting the evidence accurately. You know, not just talking about a single study um, or, you know, a single testimony or an, a single anecdote about, say, some diet advice, but they actually bring in, you know, the existing body of evidence in that, in that field. And, you know, often journalists do that, that, that very well. Um, other times you get shorter articles which are just specifically looking at one issue and they don't give you that context. So you can't weigh up these claims, you know, in, in comparison to anything else. Right. So I think... You know, there are good journalists and there are bad journalists, but, you know, there are some simple questions to, to ask when you read, a, read an article. You know, do they report where the, the study has been published? You know, that gives you a good idea of whether it's something you should be, you know, listening to. If they talk about how many um, people this was tested on in the study, you know, more is usually better. If it's a study of 10 people, you know, you can maybe be a little bit dubious about that. That should, you know, kind of raise a red flag for you. Okay. Phil, what do you think as far as the... Um the fitness world, the sports nutrition and fitness are our journalists. Um, if you want to call them that, <laughs> are they, are they doing a good or oh, bad? I, I mean, this... I, I, I'd say sadly, for the most part, I'd lean towards the bad because usually the journalists in this field are all funded by a supplement company and they love cherry picking things. Um, they yeah. love finding that one little spot out of a study that, that sounds like it proves their point. Yeah. Uh, you see that all too often. Um, and, you know, geez, so, I mean, I, I think you see, I don't know, I, I personally think you see a lot more than that than you do good, sadly, but it could just because that sticks out. I don't know. Well, uh, you know, uh, again, hearkening back to Sagan a little bit, he used to say skepticism doesn't sell, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, to a group of excited lifters who want to make progress, you know, skepticism doesn't sell. Well, you know, oh, geez, yeah. that, that herbal extract doesn't work again, you know, or... Yeah. I love what you said, though, because that's sort of a critical feature when Chris talks about peer review, which is important, you know, because essentially peer review in the most lay terms to me is when people of your level or higher, they look at your your research and they say, did you do anything stupid? You know, and but in addition to that, yeah, you could do something quite well. But for whatever reason, you've got an aberrant finding, even though the statistics suggest it's reproducible. You know what I mean? But. Yeah, then they cherry pick. Mm-hmm. That's such a good word or a good term uh, because that's what they'll do. I mean, right back in the um, early 90s, one of my first exposures to this was the amino acids and the growth hormone release stuff. You remember that, Phil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, there was a single paper by Isidori and colleagues out of Italy, 
and they found that arginine and ornithine, when you uh, took them orally, would cause mm-hmm. a significant surge in growth hormone, you know, growth hormone secretion. And lifters loved that, and it was all over the magazines. And that study was never uh, reproduced. Uh, I mean, large amounts, 30 grams of intravenous arginine, sure, mm-hmm. that'll, that'll induce a growth hormone release. But, you know, orally, you couldn't take enough. And, I mean, it was the first study I was ever in. I mean, we, had, we were taking so many capsules. At one point, we took 30 capsules. You know, mm-hmm. of arginine. I felt like a rattle. <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> terrible. And, and there was nothing, you know, and there was nothing. And so, but that one paper just kept getting cherry picked again and again. And, and even to this day, you see a lot of uh, amino acids being whole, sold as growth hormone secreted gogs. Yeah, and you see that. That's the one I think you see most often is the whole IV versus oral administration. You see supplement companies that, uh, you know, they cherry pick studies that that showed IV administration of, of, ingredients or whatever you want to call them and mm-hmm. substances and and then these supplement companies they, they just leave that part out and you know they give you <clears throat> the same or a close to dose of that but you're taking it orally like all those no2 boosters and stuff like that mm-hmm. um that just never pan out yeah. <laughs> you know i mean people the average person doesn't know but there's a there's a huge difference between iv and oral administration in in what's going to happen yeah it's like what but, i said about methodology right i mean that they leave out the important stuff on yes. the news they jump to the conclusion and mm-hmm. you yeah you see that in the fitness industry a lot too sometimes it's animal studies yeah. you know like cla i mean conjugated mm-hmm. linoleic acid i did my dissertation on that because there's so much animal work and the companies mm-hmm. are selling it because in some animal models it does remarkable things you know yeah. to body fat reducing body fatness and uh, if you go to conferences, I can't t- count the number of times I've heard humans are under-responders. We're hypo-responders to this stuff, whether it's because of the way our livers work or whatever it is. And yet that doesn't stop the people cherry-picking the, some of the animal studies in very specific animals. Like, for example, mice respond even better than rats. You know, So mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, it's that sort of methodology stuff that I think gets left out. Do you agree with that, Chris? Yeah, you see it a lot in the papers, don't you? You know, some new drug has been linked to, I don't know, some cancer prevention. And it turns out that, and this isn't reported in the actual newspaper article, it turns out it was a study done in a Petri dish in a lab. Mm -hmm. And for that to be, you know, it's a huge leap to say that, you know, you should start eating this particular fruit because it contains that compound, which they've shown in a lab can do this thing. You know, that's a huge difference. You know, great example. Uh, I was yeah. just talking about the ISSN meeting recently. Uh, there are all over one of the – and, Phil, you can correct me because I think you're up on some of this uh, more than I am being in the trenches there with the facility. But um, ursolic acid was one of the things that was getting a lot of attention. It's basically a, a plant extract from apple peels, among other things. And it's getting sold widely as a trigger of mTOR, you know, which is the pathway that sort of signifies um, – muscle protein synthesis to a lot of people and and that's accurate to a large extent but the point is uh, i was looking at this res- very unimpressive research that is going on not unimpressive in that it's designed poorly but you know the results are just not there you know and yet it's being sold wildly because there's indirect evidence um you know that this stuff may trigger mTOR and, and turn on muscle protein synthesis you know so yeah the that's a good point. It's a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, well, here's one. For, I'm going to ask you this, Phil, and please chime in, Chris. But we alluded to this, but do lifters' passions for progress make them particularly vulnerable? You know, when it comes to asking for evidence, does it, do they lower their bar for evidence because they want to believe 
Oh yeah, and you know I caught I I had a big meet yesterday, and I think the most usual <laughs> comment I got was, "Hey, bro, what what supplements do you use?" And it was like, "Oh God." Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, people are always looking for that magic pill, that that thing that's going to take them to the next level with without just nobody wants to hear just give me ten years of work. You know, they just don't want to hear that. Um, so they're always looking for that next greatest thing that's going to add ten percent or you know be the fast track to their success. Yeah, not and to it's sound just not there. I mean, it right. just hasn't turned up. <laughs> not to sound uh, crass, but I, once somebody told me, I think it was a supplement company person. He said. Um, he was a marketer, you know, and sometimes it's like there's the the token one or two science guys on one side of the table, and there's all these marketing guys on the other, and all the marketing guys want they want to tell the you know the sugar daddy that makes the decision that they've got the best thing since sliced bread, you know, oh, we have the next creatine, this and that, and you know, then usually the science guys, if they're good ones, they're like, well, let's you know, here's the caveats, and you know, let's tone that down, and you know, and they're mm-hmm. trying to negotiate you know and and be skeptical but one of the guys actually said oh if you told lifters that horse crap made them build muscle they'd be out in the fields with knives and forks that's true true. it's sad what people will do i mean look at the times when i mean it wasn't that long ago that people were chucking down liver tabs like crazy and not not that they're bad but they're not the world's greatest thing so right i mean but yeah, I mean, people will eat some things. The protein powders from ten years ago, holy, oh yeah. You know? Not only did they taste bad, yeah, they were lower quality and yeah. yeah. No, and, so it's a good argument though that things do progress. Um, you know, it's difficult to get that relationship between science and industry because on one side you want to um, develop meaningful products and monetize scientific discoveries, you know, but on the other side, there's the, it kind of goes backwards and you get the marketers abusing science to their whim, you know, but there are things undeniably though, that because of money in the industry, product sales have helped support science. I mean, creatine, you know, has a 75% consensus in the literature that it's good for repeat explosive performance, probably assists with muscle gain. You know, there are different things that, well, maybe rarely, but they do kind of come to play with some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, what do you think, Chris? Is Are you on the conservative side with, you know, scientists should act independently? Can you do good research that's funded by industry? Uh, what do you think about that? I think uh, it's always important when you're judging a claim uh, to look uh, where the money's come from. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that the research is poor if it's been industry funded. Um, and likewise, if it's say funded by an NGO, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's been it's poor research either. But it's it's definitely worth something. You know, it's definitely worth paying attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you say, marketing, you know, marketing doesn't do caveats. Science does caveats very well, mm-hmm. and that's where there's this this, this disconnect. And I absolutely agree. Um, you know, that at risk, more vulnerable communities are gonna gonna lap up these kind of claims, and mm-hmm. it's something we've seen with. Um, you know, people who are suffering from chronic illnesses, there, there's just an absolute wealth of misinformation out there in terms of, you know, untested treatments, uh, miracle cures that are being thrown around, um, and, and people are just, you know, spending a lot of money chasing essentially false hope. And I imagine in the lifting community, the, you know, people are just, you know, trying to take shortcuts when there is no shortcut to, to hard work. And this diet project that some of these uh, early career researchers have done, they've kind of come up with you know four 
little tips to help people, you know, when they come across claims in the future. And, and one of those is essentially that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Mm-hmm. And that's how you should, you should kind of, you should judge it. You know, ultimately skepticism can protect you. It doesn't sell newspapers, but it can protect you from, you know, falling for a claim which isn't backed up by evidence. Right. Actually, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he has a quote uh, that I've seen floating around that, um, you know, skepticism is essentially inoculation against people taking advantage of you, you know, and it may not sell. But, yeah, everybody's got to have their own, uh, I think, standard with that sort of thing. So tell us a little bit more about this um, this initiative with the young faculty and trying to teach people about diet so can you share some of the specific diets or is that something we should just point them to a a publication to get more information on or or what i mean there is there's a pdf out there you can have a little read through and that's got these 10 different diets five of them are are made up Um, and then it's got you know the kind of look at the evidence behind each of the diets so you know it contains things like the paleo diet which you've probably heard of um, hormone diet um, and then some more kind of more obscure ones which i'm not going to tell you too much about because i don't want to ruin the quiz and tell you which ones are real and which ones aren't right um but you can have have a look at the quiz and see how you get on you know spotting the 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 spoofs from those who are you know you know lacking in proof right well i love interactivity where can where can our listeners find this quiz so you can go to our website, which is uh, www.senseaboutscience.org, and then we'll make sure that the voice uh, spoof diet project is right on the front page, so you should be able to find it. I think that's brilliant. I just, mm-hmm. you know, mixing in completely made-up diets with ones that are seriously proposed, you know, to consumers, that's fantastic, you know. So can I even pick out which one of these are just completely invented, like a joke, you know, and which ones are supposedly serious? You know, I think that's great. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's an important it's an important thing because people are you know spending lots of money and and and, and you know potentially you know doing themselves damage by following these diets which are just not based on evidence um and it all kind of plays into our wider campaign which is our ask for evidence campaign um and this isn't just about diets this is about any claim that you come across um you should ask for evidence behind it and what this does is it empowers people to you know talk about evidence it means that evidence becomes more important in you know society but it also means that people who are making claims whether it's you know people selling a product like a diet or a supplement or whether it's you know politicians making claims about policy statements um it means that they're going to expect to be asked so they're going to have to have the evidence in place when they make their next claims and this campaign has been going for about 18 months now and already we've seen you know products taken off shelves um claims you know withdrawn just because you know a very small number of people have simply asked for evidence behind it and it's not a demand it's not chastising people it's just saying you know what's the evidence behind this claim um, some some companies really didn't expect to be asked and didn't realize that they needed to have evidence in the first place. So there was one uh, chain of juice bars which was selling uh, a wheatgrass smoothie, um, and it had all these different claims about being able to remove toxins from your bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And you know we asked them for evidence, or an individual asked them for evidence, and they said, "Well, we just thought it sounded good on the promotional material." Oh, they boy. didn't realize that they actually had to have evidence to back up these claims. <laughs> right. And as a result of being asked 
they've taken all that advertising away. They've, they've taken those leaflets because they realize that actually they should be evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and again, <clears throat> I'm not sure how it works uh, in Europe, but so here we have a lot of structure function claims, you know, and these use uh, what some conservative scientists would call weasel words like uh, may help support bone health, you know, and statements like that uh, because it's it's not explicit. If they were to say increases bone density, you know, uh, in 12 months, that would be very specific or, you know, it can't treat or prevent specific diseases. So they have these structure function claims, like I said, may help support a healthy immune system, you know, and that's what they put on labels. But that's enough to influence the consumer, you know, even though it's very vague. Uh, I will say this. There is a drive uh, I've actually done it for a couple of different companies. They'd say, can you help us build an evidence library for this, that, or the other? And I've actually worked with some of them, and sometimes to their chagrin, and said, there's just not enough evidence on that. I'm not, you know, I'll show you um, a dozen uh, papers, even meta-analyses, you know, or systematic reviews that that doesn't work. You know, they don't want to hear that. They might not want to remove the skew from their product line, you know, but uh, there is at least some uh, regulation even that they're expected to have some kind of evidence library on different things. But then again, it kind of falls to the marketers how they're going to use that. Like, like Phil's saying, I mean, I could give them um, mm-hmm. 30 papers and 28 of them say this doesn't do anything. And then the two that look interesting, they just, you know, have those all over the ads, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the concerns that I know is, um, in fact, Joey Antonio kind of turned me on to this, but he said we have to be careful not to completely dissuade industry either because, for example, in the dietary supplement world, Phil, as you know, you don't have to do a lot of re- product-specific research uh, to release um, a particular product, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if every time they fund a study, you know, they even write a small ten or $20,000 grant to a university and, and we do the study and then it comes back negative, they're not going to do that very often because the return on investment is very poor. You know, they're not a big corporation all the time and they don't have like a five-year R&D projection kind of, you know, department and, and that sort of thing. So you know, it really it was an interesting perspective uh it made me maybe a little more moderate maybe a little less conservative when he said you can't completely punish a, a corporation every time they fund a study by saying everybody needs to know you know the university now owns this data and therefore everybody will know how your product doesn't work well that's extremely disincentivizing to the industry side but on the flip side you don't want to bury a bunch of um, non-significant data, you know, that, it, you know, you hope that you give that back to the company. And they're like, well, you know, they're not really finding a, much reproducible uh, evidence for our product. So maybe we'll we'll tweak the formula or we'll change that in some way. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? But who owns that data and whether or not you're punishing versus incentivizing industry to even engage in science? Do you know what I'm talking about, Chris? Does, does this ring a bell at all? I mean, one of the other campaigns that that we're looking at is is called All Trials, and it's uh, it's it's um, trying to ensure that all clinical trials um, are registered and have results published, because 
and this is shocking when I first heard about it, many, many clinical trials on medicines that we use, uh, medical interventions that are used around the world, many of these clinical trials are never registered and, and they don't have their results reported. So what that essentially means is that the drugs that you're taking when you're unwell, these are not necessarily based on all the data. You know, if I flipped a coin 10 times, but I only showed you five of the results, I could probably convince you that that coin had heads on both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, this problem with publication bias because negative results don't get published is, is one thing. Mm -hmm. And that's starting to change because there are journals which are, you know, out there to specifically publish uh, negative results, mm -hmm. i.e. results which don't show that something is working. Um, but the fact that, you know, trials on, on medicines that we're using aren't even being registered and having their results reported is, is, is absolutely shocking. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, how do you come to consensus when you're only looking at the rosy side of, you know, the evidence base? <clears throat> I mean, one of the examples is, is Tamiflu, which is something that um, the UK government specifically stockpiled when, you know, the swine flu uh, pandemic was there was a big worry about it a few years ago um, and that was stockpiled on the basis of a number of clinical trials that had been done to show that or that showed that it was effective at reducing the symptoms of, of swine flu and then um, four years later um, they've actually been able to get access to all of the, cl the clinical trials which were done and it turns out that actually this drug is not as anywhere near as effective as those first trials showed. I think originally there were about 20, 20 trials that they looked at, and you know, when, when they were able to access all of the data, which was about 70 trials in total, they, they found out that you know, the UK government, and I'm sure other governments around the world have spent a lot of money as well, but the UK government had spent something like £500 million stockpiling a drug, which oh. turns out to really not be anything more effective than paracetamol. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's huge amounts of money, and that's just one, you know, one example. There are probably lots and lots more out there which we don't know about because we don't have the data. Right, and you know what? This isn't bad science. This isn't a scam from a marketer. This is good science that just didn't show anything, right? And so when you don't share that as well, yeah, how can people make a balanced, you know, conclusion out of that? Um, all right, one last quick question here. So. You know, in a world of strength and bodybuilding forums, you know, gurus, bro science is what we call it over here, you know, which is sort of gym talk that gets passed down and it's not systematic really. Um, what final advice would you have for our listenership, right? For modern lifters who want to make the best training and nutrition decisions, what final advice would you have for them, Chris? I would say when confronted by claims about something that's going to improve your lifting or whatever aspect of your diet or fitness, you say, well, ask for evidence behind those claims. Where did, where did that evidence come from? Where's that claim come from? Um, you know, ask the individual who's making that claim. Or if you see it on a supplement, ask the company where that, where that you know, claims, where the evidence is behind that claim. Um, and I think in, in a lot of times you'll find out that there is actually no evidence to back it up. Okay. Phil, what do you think? Um, final advice? Oh, um, my final advice would be if you're looking something that's close to a magic pill, then you're not going to find it in a store because all those things have been made illegal already. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, well, what both, it, you know, what both you guys are saying, I think about the old quote that, you know, when you're presented with extraordinary claims, 
then expect extraordinary evidence. Yeah. You know, I mean, there should be a, re- Absolutely. a an enormous amount of rock solid evidence to support, you know, some of the claims that we've we've seen. And you're, you're right, Phil, from the lifter side of things, <laughs> how many times is a it's not just dietary supplements, a book or a training program, you know, how many times are they? expressed in efficacy in terms of anabolic steroid abuse you know <laughs> like th- this will make you as jacked as diana ball you know or you know and that kind of thing and so yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay yeah. all right well uh, thanks chris for coming on with us i really appreciate yeah, it good though. no problem i really enjoyed it and i hope that you guys take the quiz and we'll see how well you do at spotting the spoof diets awesome thanks a lot Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.